were the mighty one. You were the man of war. You are also the God of love. And because you love your people so much, you do war with those things uh, that threaten us, uh, those things which uh, would enslave us. And we will see a picture today as you break the power of slavery over your people in Israel, uh, dwelling in Egypt. We'll see a picture of the way that you break uh, the power of slavery of sin for your people, the way that we stand and watch and see you fight for us, and how we can observe uh, your salvation. Help us to do that today. Give us spiritual eyes and spiritual ears, spiritual hearts and minds to understand these things. We pray that you would grow us more and more in knowledge of you uh, and in worship of you. We ask these things in your name and for your glory. Amen. Okay, so we are in uh, Exodus 14 and 15, quite a bit shorter than last week's reading. Uh, so if you were here last week and if you see Chris Campelli, uh, don't tell him that he wasn't supposed to cover all of chapter 13, but he did, and he did a wonderful job, so we'll run with that. Uh, but we're going to be doing uh, chapter 14 and, uh, and the first two-thirds, really, of 15. I need four volunteers to help read, uh, if you wouldn't mind. Four volunteers. Corey, can you grab chapter 14, verses 1 through 18? 1 through 18. Jay, can you get the remainder of chapter 14, verses 19 through 31? Somebody else to get uh, some in chapter 15? Sarah, thank you. Uh, Sarah is going to read chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. Uh, and one more volunteer to round out chapter 15. Thank you, Cynthia. Uh, so 15, 13 through 21. All right, let's get started. Corey has the first half of chapter 14. Go ahead, Corey.
Thank you, folks, for helping to read. So this is one of the best-known stories uh, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the quintessential picture of God's salvation for his people Israel, bringing them out of their slavery in Egypt. Uh, But I want to pose a question to you. Uh, It's one that uh, isn't uh, a hard question, uh, but it's worth us thinking about it. And the question is, why should we pay attention to a passage like this? We know how important it was for Israel. We know that over and over and over again in the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites go back to this. Uh, the, the Lord is the one who uh, draws his people out, the one who saved them from Egypt. Uh, even through the generations of Israel, the people spoke in first person. Uh, they would say it as though the Lord brought us out from Egypt. Even if it happened hundreds of years ago, uh, they, would, uh, they would recognize this and they would identify with this and they would uh, tell their children, this is what the Lord has done for us. Uh, But here we are, we're not Israelites, we're the Gentiles that the Lord has brought in, uh, at least I think uh, the vast majority of us, Um, and so we're a little bit removed from this. Uh, So why pay attention to some story in the Old Testament, and what does it matter uh, if it actually happened or didn't actually happen, and and why should this make a difference to us? What do you think? Why should we pay attention to a story like this, something that seems so archaic uh, and in the past? Becky. Okay, so we, we learn something about God. God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, so that we can be assured that uh, if we ever find ourselves in slavery in Egypt, he can bring us out too. Not really. Uh, so you understand the way that we can apply that, but, but we do need to do some, uh, some wrangling with that. We say, well, uh, it doesn't apply directly uh, in that sense. We will most likely uh, never be slaves in Egypt. Uh, but it does tell us something about this very same God and the way that he deals with his people. Uh, the way that he is powerful for his people, not just in this particular circumstance, but in circumstances uh, that may be like it. I've already mentioned, if you listen to my prayer uh, when we opened, that this is a picture of spiritual salvation for God's people. And God uh, uses this word salvation here uh, in this passage in a different way than we would tend to use it in the New Testament era. But it's the same God uh, who speaks of salvation and becomes a, a model for us as well. Great. Why else should we pay attention to an old story like this? Bill? So it's important to believe this, this historical stuff. Uh, it's not enough to say, oh, well, this might have been uh, just some myth that the people carry on, because we believe in a historical Christ who came from a historical people with a historical background, and you can trace all these things back, and that stuff is all pretty important. Uh, and so we, we need to understand how those things all fit together. Yeah, Teresa. Absolutely. So it's another sense of of knowing this same God. Not only is he a powerful God, uh, but he's a God who fulfills his promises. And so when we look throughout the the pages of the New Testament, as well as the Old, we find some promises. And we say, will will God be the kind of God who keeps these promises? And we say, well, uh, he did it for the Israelites. And he did it through all these other things and these other circumstances that we can find in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Uh, And so here's here's something we can hold on to. It reveals the God who is. Yeah, did you want to add to that? Yeah. 
Absolutely. So it's this, it's this picture of spiritual salvation. Uh, now, it's good to know about God in that picture of spiritual salvation. It's also good to know about ourselves. Uh, and when we see Israel and their reaction here, and when we see even Pharaoh and his reaction, uh, we learn a little bit about ourselves. Uh, and we'll see the same thing as we go throughout uh, the Old Testament, as we go throughout Exodus especially. Uh, let me suggest uh, these are all really good answers. Uh, I thought of, of two answers. Uh, to that question, why should we pay attention to something like this? Two major points of uh, significance for us. One we find in the passage itself. This passage tells us what we need to know about this passage. Uh, particularly, it tells us what we need to know uh, about God. Take a look uh, in three verses, verses 4, 17, and 18. You'll see the same language repeated three times. Verse 4 says this, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. But here the Lord says, I will get glory. Here's the point of what he's doing. Here's the reason it's recorded, so that God's people would give him glory. They would worship him and praise him. See the same thing in verses 17 and then again in 18. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, the answers that you've given are very good. Uh, I'm not saying that this is better than or, or different, but it's a different aspect of why do we read Scripture? Why do we look at stories like this? Because it shows God's gloriousness. It shows his glory. And that would be enough. If we didn't have the other things, which we do, uh, if we didn't have this picture of spiritual salvation for us now, it would be enough for us to study this just to come away and say, wow, God is glorious. Uh, and sometimes we miss that. Uh, you know, we, we come and we listen to sermons, um, and we read scripture, and very often we, we read scripture and we say, well, what can this do for me? How can it teach me or direct me? And those are all very good aims. Uh, when I'm preparing to preach, I'm always trying to think, well, how can I not just teach you the words, but apply these words and help you to apply these words to your lives as well? But it would be enough if we came to a passage like this and we said, the Lord is glorious, and we worshiped him for it, because this is the whole point of what the Lord is doing. Uh, so that brings us to our three-point breakdown, uh, as I normally give you. Uh, I think what we see here, uh, three things. We could say God gets glory through the circumstances of his people. He gets glory through the salvation of his people. And he gets glory through the praise of his people. The whole thing, Exodus chapters 14 and 15, really all of Scripture, uh, is about giving God the glory he deserves. And here we see three things, that in the circumstances, no matter how hopeless they might be, no matter how the Lord brings his people into situations that we look around and we say, how did I get here? What am I doing in this place where I've got no way to turn and I've got no way to deliver myself? The Lord says, I'm doing this so that I would get glory. And then he also saves his people, uh, and that is all of his glory. Uh, he's brought his people into a hopeless situation, very, very realistically, a hopeless situation. Uh, they are surrounded with mountains on one side and the desert on the other, the Egyptians pursuing them from behind and standing in front of a very large body of water. They have nowhere to go. They cannot deliver themselves. And so God comes and saves them. He fights for them is the word that it says. And it sort of echoes uh, all the way back in chapter 1 
You remember Pharaoh said, let's deal harshly with the Israelites, lest they multiply and they fight with our enemies against us. And then they leave the land. And the Lord shows up and says, you just wait. You don't have to join Egypt's enemies because I'm fighting. I'm going to do the fighting, I'm going to do the saving, and I'm going to get the glory. And it's all about giving God the glory. Uh, and then finally, what the people do is they turn around and they praise the Lord. They do exactly what they were supposed to do. They, they praise him, they speak of how wonderful he is, uh, and they speak of how the other nations, not just the people of Israel, but the other nations are now seeing and hearing what the Lord is doing. You remember when the people come in later into the promised land, and they send the spies to Rahab and Jericho, and they say, the hearts of the people have melted in fear because of the God who dries up the Jordan River and who spread uh, or, or divided the, the Red Sea. And the God who has done all these mighty works, the other nations are hearing. They're starting to give glory. Just as we saw through the plagues, the Egyptians are starting to realize, this is the finger of God. <laughs> this is something that is too much for us, something that we are not to be trifling with, and God gets the glory. So that would be enough. I think. Uh, but there is more. Um, so we've, we've mentioned this picture of salvation. Uh, that's very important. There's a second point, though, of, of why she, should we read this. Uh, take a look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would. I'm going to ask for one more volunteer to read a short passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Anybody, anybody? Mike, thank you. Could you read the first six verses, please? Yep. Thank you. Notice the moral focus here. Uh, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, whom we know a little bit. We've got some familiarity with the Corinthians. Uh, very largely a Gentile church, though there are likely some Jews there as well. We read of that in Acts uh, chapter 18, when the Corinthian church is founded. So there are some Jews and some Gentiles, but he speaks of our fathers. Uh, and he talks about them passing through the Red Sea as though through a baptism, and a baptism into Moses, whatever that means. We'll talk about that later, maybe. Um, but all of these things happen, and then he gets all the way into, into verse 6 of that chapter, and he says, and these things were written down for us so that we would not desire evil as they did. There's a moral focus here. Uh, in a sense, uh, what we've already spoken of in, in talking about the spiritual side of salvation, the, the way that we have a picture, is more of this giving glory to God stuff. Um, but now here's a, a shift in a little bit. Not just uh, what are we to think of God and how are we to worship God, but how are we to uh, act in response to what he has already done? You know, Paul uses that, and he really points to the Exodus event, but also all the wilderness wanderings. And he says, you see, when the people came out, and we'll see next week, uh, this grumbling uh, that happens almost immediately after they come out uh, and pass through the Red Sea, where the problem is there is too much water, and then they come into a place where there is not enough water, they begin grumbling. Uh, and, it, and it's this, uh, this funny little ironic picture there. Uh, but he uses this, the whole event really, to say, uh, look, if you've been saved in this way, if God has done this, uh, we need to understand 
how we are to live in, to re, in relation to him. And so these things are important for us, to get a picture of not just God and his strength and his glory so that we would worship him properly, you know, what we do here together or, or what we do when we sing praises or we, we pray to him, um, but how we live our daily lives. This should show us something about the God who lives, the God who is a consuming fire, uh, it says in the letter to the Hebrews. And so this is really important for us. Uh, so I want you to remember those, those three things. God is getting glory through circumstances, salvation, and praise. Uh, and then let's turn our attention to, to really walk through the passage together. Um, any big questions on what's going on before we get started and before we begin to step through it? Jay. Yes. Take two, please, dear. Yeah, and you saw that, uh, for those of you that were here last week, you saw that. Um, where is it? Um, chapter 13, verse 14. So it's just been talking about redemption and redeeming the firstborn that comes out of every womb. Most animals are sacrificed. They are given to the Lord. Uh, it, it singles out donkeys, for some reason, uh, to be redeemed by a lamb. Uh, and then it obviously singles out children because uh, child sacrifice was a complete abomination to Israel, even though it was done in the nations around them. And it says in chapter 13, verse 14, And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And then he begins to, uh, to say, This is what you tell your children. Uh, and, and there's an application here. This is why we do what we do. It's the same thing that we saw when you look at the institution of the Passover. And you do this, and in time, when your son says to you, why do we hold this feast? You tell them why. Teach your children, not just the things they should do, but what the Lord has done for us. Uh, I love that application, Jay. Thank you for that. All right. So uh, the first few verses here, uh, the first paragraph, really, the first four verses in chapter 14, does this remind you of anything that we have read in recent weeks in Exodus? Take a look at the language. Corey? Uh, yes. So it, it's, in a sense, it's the way that Pharaoh has already dealt uh, with Israel, saying, yeah, you can do, you can go, you can whatever, and I'll let you go, but uh, on second thought, maybe not. And it's all this relenting and then not relenting, and, and this back and forth. Great. So we see the, the connection there with Pharaoh. He is working the same way that he has already. Uh, what about the language from the Lord to Moses? Corey's on the right track to give you folks a, uh, uh, an inside uh, tidbit there. Teresa? He said to turn back. He did tell them to turn back. Yep. Yep. Pai ha Yeah. 
Jay, what were you going to say? So he's establishing Moses as he did through the plagues. Corey? Yes. So in all of these ways, we're seeing a repetition of the plagues. Uh, and even in the language, the very first opening line, then the Lord said to Moses. Didn't we see that already ten times? That's how every single one of the plagues opened. The Lord said to Moses. It's initiated from the Lord speaking to Moses, and then there is this focus of what the Lord is going to do. I'm going to show my glory. I'm going to get glory. I'm going to harden his heart. And all these things that you've already mentioned, it is a, a repetition, really, of, um, of what we saw in the plagues. Take a look back in chapter 7, really quickly. We can see it in the first, and elements of this are, uh, are scattered throughout all the plagues. But take a look at verse 3, or really verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, it opens the same way, but take a look at verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, take a look at verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt, and I bring out my people of Israel from among them. And take a look down at verse 16. And you shall say to them, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you have not obeyed. It is a repetition of all of these plagues. In fact, interestingly enough, uh, if you happen to have uh, the ESV study Bible uh, and you look up just the, just the general outline of the book of Exodus, it lumps uh, all of these things together in one section beginning in chapter 7 and ending in chapter 15 of God's warfare with Egypt. And so this is, you could almost think of it as the 11th plague. It's not called a plague. It's not used. Uh, they don't use the same terminology. But it is the very same thing. The Lord is still doing war with Egypt. He's still uh, organizing things and orchestrating things such that Pharaoh is drawn in. One commentator I read this week said that it is another ruse, another ruse to draw Pharaoh in and to demolish him. Notice what it says. Uh, the Lord told them to turn back. Tell the people of Israel to turn back and go to Pi Hahiroth between Migdol, Baal-Zaphon, uh, and they will think the wilderness has shut them in. They'll think that you went this way and you couldn't find a way out, and so you turn around and you went the other way and you couldn't find a way out, and you turn around and you went another way, and they're going to think they don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're doing. They're sitting ducks, and so let's send our army and let's bring them back, and that's exactly what happened. Um, how can we account for the change of mind in Pharaoh? Is he really that stupid? Is he really just, he just doesn't know, I mean, he's, we saw already, two weeks ago, uh, his servants came to him and said, don't you yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Uh, and he was hardened, and he was obstinate, and he wouldn't let the people go, and now he's finally let them go, and it seems like the plagues have gone, and yet he thinks, uh, you know, let, let's try one more time. <laughs> maybe the third time wasn't the charm, the fourth and the fifth, maybe the eleventh time will be the charm. Maybe we can get the people back. How do we account for this? Teresa. Okay. Yeah, so he, he may actually just believe the, uh, the doctrine of the Egyptians, that he is this God who has some sort of power. Um, and you know, when you, when you start to look at the different religions of the ancient world, uh, they all conceived of the deities as kind of fickle, not very fixed, 
Uh, maybe today you would be in their graces and tomorrow you'd be out of their graces, and you, and you couldn't really account for why. Uh, because uh, they conceived of the deities as kind of like you and me. Uh, that we kind of shift, and, and we're not very stable, um, and, and we change our mind. They, they thought the gods were like that. They also thought that the gods were uh, very often tied to a locale. Um, so if you got outside of a locale, think of uh, the healing of Naaman from Syria. Uh, remember what he does after he's healed. He gathers up a bunch of dirt from Israel, and he takes it back with him. And, and we see a, a pagan sort of learning to worship the Lord in, in pagan ways and with pagan understanding. He takes dirt back so that he can kneel on the dirt of Israel because he's going to be praying to the God of Israel. And, and we look at that and we say, well, you, you don't get it. <laughs> that's not how God works. Uh, and perhaps that's part of what Israel, or, or Pharaoh rather, is thinking. Uh, the people have gotten out. And, and yeah, God was powerful here. Uh, when all these things were happening, but now they're, they're gone, and, and we can catch them in the wilderness where their God can't protect them. Think of, uh, of uh, Jonah. Uh, I'll go to uh, a faraway land, uh, and maybe I'll escape the Lord. And No, no, no. Uh, he's the God of heaven and earth and, and the seas and all they contain. Uh, and so maybe there's, there's some of that. There, you, you see just the way that they conceive of, of who God is. Uh, Ronnie, you were going to add to that. Who's going to make all the bricks? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's sin at work in Pharaoh. Now, we do see that it is obviously the Lord is hardening his heart. Mike, are you going to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as the dog returns to its vomit. Uh, and that would describe all of us. Uh, and I think that the picture here is, um, you know, it talks about the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. Uh, and it certainly speaks in active language. Let's, let's not soft pedal that. The Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Um, but what does he have to do to harden his heart? Uh, but simply remove some of his grace and protection. Uh, some of his gentleness with Pharaoh. Uh, and, and we are all like this at our core. Uh, so when we look at Pharaoh, um, we realize he's not really all that different from the Israelites, who in just a little bit uh, will be turning around at Moses, and they've got this great one-liner. No graves in Egypt, Moses, that you had to bring us out here? I mean, you, you, know, you couldn't kill us there. You had to bring us out here to die, uh, which is funny because uh, Egypt is known as the land of the tombs, uh, and there are tons of graves in Egypt. They have, they have them in abundance. They have tombs everywhere. Um, but maybe there weren't enough tombs, Moses, that you brought us out here. And so, you know, when we look at, at Pharaoh and we look at Israel, they're doing kind of the same thing. Uh, so how can we account for what Israel's doing then? Obviously, it's, it's this problem of sin. Uh, what, is their, uh, what is their response? It says they cried out to the Lord. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? 
It's a good thing. Yeah. Certainly a good thing. Yeah. That's an excellent question. Let's look at the language again. Um, Dale Ralph Davis is very helpful um, in dealing with this idea of crying. Um, take a look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now look at verse 11. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we said to you while we were in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, uh, we look at this word cry, and I'm going to get to your question, Teresa. We're, give me a minute and we'll get there. Um, so we look at this word cry, and normally we would say this is a great thing. What do you do when you're in trouble? You cry out to the Lord. Uh, but generally, the way that, that Hebrew narrative works, um, and, and in the New Testament too, very often it'll say what they did, and then it'll tell you what they said. So when it has them saying, in verse 11 and following, they said to Moses, we can understand this as the content of their crying. Okay, And this really is, is more of grumbling than crying. Take a look. This helps us to see it uh, down in verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Now, if you were praying in faith, if you were praying a believing prayer, do you think the Lord would come to you and say, cut that out? What are you doing? I don't think so. Uh, sadly, most of, the, most of the modern commentators that I read um, took this and ran with it, and they said, there are moments that we don't need to pray, we just need to act. And that was the way that they, uh, they approached this. Calvin had a much different uh, view of this, and I think a view that is very helpful. Um, Calvin says, speaking of verse 10 and, and then in verse 15, we may easily gather that this cry neither arose from faith nor from serious and well-ordered affections. Their insane cries against Moses were plain proof that as in amazement they had thoughtlessly hastened to call upon the name of God. That it wasn't a, the Lord has saved us before and he'll save us again, it was this sort of exasperated cry, this cry of fear rather than a cry of faith. Sometimes that's all we can muster. Let's be honest. Sometimes all we can muster is a cry of fear. Uh, the Lord is gracious. Remember, the Lord has chosen to be gracious. Uh, he will tell his people when they come in, uh, when they're about to go in the land in Deuteronomy, uh, it's not because you are the greatest of the people. It's not because you are more righteous than the other people, but I chose to put my love on you. God is being gracious here. I think, in, in not consuming them. We'll see more and more as they go through the wilderness, they grumble, and it, it really uses those words, they grumble against the Lord. Uh, they think they're grumbling against Moses, but the Lord says, you're not grumbling against Moses, you're grumbling against me. 
Uh, and so it's pretty important. There's this thread coming throughout this, uh, this passage. When we take a look at the end of, of this chapter, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. It's important that they combine those two things, because how is it they cry to the Lord? Well, they look at Moses and they say, what are you doing bringing us into the, into the wilderness to die? Uh, so I think the only way we can account for the fact that there is this questioning, there is this grumbling, which does not seem to arise from faith. I think Calvin, Calvin had it very well there. Um, here's, what, here's what he says on Moses. Calvin says, the sense then is, uh, weary not yourself by crying anymore, the event will prove that you are heard. Uh, so don't, don't keep just calling out and being exasperated. I'm going to show you how I'm going to deliver you. Uh, you don't need to have this, this cry of fear. But I think it's, it's good to see what's going on there. But uh, we can only look at it and say, the Lord is being gracious. Uh, why doesn't he consume them? Why doesn't he do what he did with Zechariah, where he said, how will these things be? For I am very old. And, and the angel Gabriel says, well, you're not going to be able to talk for nine months. How's that? Uh, that's how you'll know. Um, and with Mary, she says, how will I know these things? For I am yet a virgin. And he says, relax, Mary. Uh, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Uh, and will come upon you, and you will be with child, and all these other things. And sometimes we don't know. Uh, the Lord chooses to be gracious. I think there's a, there's a difference. Sometimes, um, you know, what Mary is doing uh, is a little bit different than what Zechariah is doing. Um, I think, uh, just reading the way that it happens, because we don't believe that God is fickle, uh, nor do we believe that his, uh, his uh, responses are fickle to his people, uh, that that question is asked from Zechariah in a, in a kind of disbelief. Uh, it's asked by Mary in a kind of, well, well, how will I see these things? I explain it to me a little bit. Um, misunderstanding and disbelief are different things. Um, and I think that that's how we account for what happens with Zechariah and Mary. Um, but here, it seems that people are in disbelief. And God is gracious. He does not consume them. He does not say, you know what, because you're grumbling, I'm not going to save you. In fact, he says, look, just be quiet. Notice he says, you don't, he says, you don't have to fight. In fact, you should be silent. Stop grumbling, stop complaining, and watch what the Lord is going to do because you're going to see some of God's mercy. Does that help to explain that at all? Okay. And it's at the same hour. Yeah. 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 Becky. Yeah. Well, good. Good. Becky. Yeah, and we're going to see that in increasing measure. Um, so Becky's pointing to the Messiah and the fact that the Lord uh, is the God who forgives. Forgiveness only comes through the Messiah who is to come. 
um, and, and sort of preparing ourselves. We're going to see um, the people of Israel grumbling against Moses, um, trying to wrap their minds around what the Lord is doing in increasing measure until we get to the golden calf. It's really sort of the, uh, the amoral climax of the book. Uh, now, you know, originally Moses tried to deliver them and they said, who made you a prince over us? And then Moses came back and he tried to deliver them, sent by the Lord. Uh, and uh, I think what they're referencing here, isn't this what we said to you when we were still in Egypt? Leave us alone. Uh, what they said in chapter 6 is you put a sword in the hand of, of Pharaoh to kill us. Uh, and so they continue to, to grumble against Moses and what the Lord is doing to them. Um, even now after they come out, they're grumbling against Moses. They'll continue to grumble against Moses as they go throughout the wilderness. And they'll get to a point where Moses is gone and no longer are they just grumbling against Moses, but they say, as for this Moses, we don't know what happened to him. And they turn that into a sin against the Lord. And so, well, instead of uh, Moses, let's... Let's make a golden image. Let's have a something, something we can see, because we can't even see Moses anymore. He's been gone for any number of days up there on the mountain. Uh, we don't know where he is. And so there's this increasing uh, grumbling of the people until the Lord finally comes, and the way he remedies their grumbling is by showing his nature. You know, Moses prays and intercedes, and he says, Lord, prove that you're going to go up into the land with us uh, and show me your glory. The Lord comes down in Exodus 34, and he says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, abounding in forgiveness and steadfast love, and, and yet not, uh, you know, I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, and yet not letting the guilty go unpunished, and punishing the, the sins of the fathers of the children of the fourth generation, all these other things. What he does is he comes and he says, uh, here's, a, here's a, a conundrum for you to wrap your minds around. I'm the God who punishes sin and yet forgives sin. <laughs> what do we do with that? Uh, how do we wrap our minds around this? Well, uh, this is sort of the, the drum beat, the, the two beats that, that sort of get more and more in sync as the Old Testament goes along, then they find their rhythm together in Christ, uh, the one who uh, enables the Lord to be both just and the justifier of the one who believes in him. So absolutely. We're seeing very small hints and tidbits of this, but we're beginning to see it. The Lord is gracious, even in this book, uh, you know, sometimes we can read chapter 14, and we can just think about chapter 14. Now, let's fit into the larger context. Uh, the Lord shows over and over again that he's gracious, and here's a reason, because this is who he is. Uh, and let's fit into the larger context still, that God does this all throughout the Old Testament. He's drawing their attention to the one who will come and, and draw the remnant out, uh, and then we find its culmination in Christ. Yeah, so this is, uh, these are shadows of the things that we're going to see more and more of. Good. Thank you for bringing that up. Any other questions? Let's see what we can do with a few more points here. Um, we've got more than we can discuss. I'm trying to decide which parts we should discuss. All right, um, so what should we think? Here is a question that was raised when we started. And in our remaining five minutes, we'll get to scratch the surface, but by no means uh, get very deep in it. Uh, when we started our first class, uh, Teresa raised the question, well, some people say that it wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Sea of Reeds, it was kind of a marshy land. And so the Lord didn't actually do this great, wonderful thing, and if we, uh, if we put it in its proper perspective, we see that you know, they went through a, a boggy swamp land that was temporarily dry, and then, uh, and then the Lord you know, put it back in its normal course or whatever, it's like a tidal pool almost. Uh, what do we see in this passage? 
Uh, let's, let's contain it to this passage right now. Unfortunately, most of the modern commentators, even ones that are really solid in other areas, get to this point and they say, yeah, maybe Sea of Reeds, not the Red Sea. Uh, almost all of them uh, will, will capitulate on this point. There are some really good ones who will hold fast, uh, but the vast majority, they'll go through all the plagues and say, the Lord was working a miracle, the Lord was working a miracle. Then they'll get to the Red Sea and they'll go, eh, uh, which is a little disappointing, to say the least. So how would you, just from this passage, what we read, how would we say, well, this, this seems to be something much more than just a tidal pool that, that's going on here. Steve? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so there's the first one. How do we account for the Egyptians? Um, we can certainly account for their, uh, their wheels bogging down. Sure. If they're going through a marshlands and you're in a chariot, your wheels are going to bog down, you're going to drive heavily. But you can probably trudge out of, you know, ankle-deep water or knee-deep water, you know. Uh, but this very clearly says, and, and all throughout the Old Testament, it goes back and it says the Lord wiped out the Egyptians. That's a major part of this. And don't forget that when Moses is writing this and when he's giving this, he's delivering it to people who actually were there. He's not, you know, it doesn't show up centuries later as people are in, in the, uh, the promised land and they say, oh, yeah, nobody passed this down to us. No, 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 this, this comes at the time that it's happening and, and this all comes before the people come into the promised land. Great. What else? Corey. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So it seems to be that there is, uh, and it uses, it's even more, uh, explicit. Take a look in chapter 15 in the song. Where is it here? Um, take a look at verse 8. Three times, three different images. At the blast of your nostrils, now that's obviously poetic, uh, the waters piled up. And so they say, well, maybe that's poetic too. Uh, God doesn't make the wind with his nostrils. In fact, he doesn't have nostrils. He's a, he's a spirit. Uh, without parts or, or passions or anything like that. And so uh, this, is, this is poetic, obviously, but it, it does it two more times. Uh, the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the hearts of the sea. Well, yeah, we can say that's poetic, but it's poetic to explain something that's actually happening. And what's happening is that, that there's water gathered together in large amounts. Uh, that it's not moving. It doesn't go where it should go, which is flowing to the, uh, the bottom-most portion. It, you know, it will always seek the lowest ground, but that doesn't happen. And even if we say, well, a wall and a pile and a heap and congealed, it's all poetic. Well, something's happening. Uh, however you want to put it, there's something happening that we need to account for. Becky, how else would we uh, say that this couldn't possibly be just a, a salt mark? Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it would be a pretty great magic trick, um, or just really good timing, uh, if Moses did this. And, and notice, um, at the end, it's instigated by the Lord again. It begins when the Lord says, stretch out your hand over the waters, and the waters are separated. And then at the end, 
the Lord says, now stretch out your hands again over the water, and it comes in and it sweeps them into the, the heart of the sea. Uh, so there's, there's something they can connect it with, almost like in the plagues when Moses said, tell me when you want me to ask the Lord to get rid of the frogs, and Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Okay, tomorrow it is. Uh, that, that there's a, a very clear uh, cause and effect. Uh, the Lord's prophet is doing what the Lord has commanded him to do, and it lines up with, with what the Lord is doing to save his people. Steve. Okay. solid ground. Because you've got people, you've got herds, you've got flocks, you've got children, uh, you've got old people, all the people going together, uh, and he doesn't send them through the slough of despond. He doesn't put them in a bog to have them wade through it uh, and get all muddy on the other side. It very clearly talks about dry land, absolutely. Um, and not so when the Egyptians go in. Brian. The land of the Philistines. Yeah. 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 So if he took them through the Sea of Reeds, he took them right into the Philistine territory where he said he wasn't going to take them. Right. Right. Yeah, so this, this all happens very much south of where the Sea of Reeds would be. In fact, uh, Yom Suf is the, uh, the Hebrew term here, which actually doesn't show up in chapter 14. So let's be honest with that. In chapter 14, it simply says the sea. It mentions sea, uh, the Red Sea, rather, Yom Suf, in chapter 13 and also in chapter 15. But in chapter 14, it simply says the sea. Uh, and so that's one of the, the ways the commentators say, well, it, yeah, it could be anywhere. It could be the Sea of Reeds. Uh, but it, it's very clearly uh, the Red Sea. And everywhere else in the Old Testament, when it speaks of Red Sea, it's talking about the Red Sea that we know of. Now, I'll concede, it could have been a very short portion of the Red Sea. Uh, you're not going to take them through the widest, most portion. Uh, that would take forever to get all the people through. It could be a narrow portion, but there's enough water there that it's deep, that it's dangerous, that it's the kind of thing that you can't do on your own just because the tide has gone down. Uh, later in, um, I think it's 1 Kings. Um, I have it here somewhere. Maybe not. Um, in 1 Kings, it, it talks about Solomon gathering the gold for the temple. And where does he get it? Well, he builds ships with Hiram, king of Tyre, and they sail on the Yom Suf, on the Red Sea, uh, to go to the land of Ophir and, and get gold. It's a large body of water. You need ships to sail in it, and all these other things. So, and, and when you look throughout the, the rest of the Old Testament, uh, in fact, we have a, a scholar among us uh, who wrote a very fine book, uh, Path in the Mighty Waters. Where's that quotation taken from, Steve? From Isaiah. But it's talking about what the Lord did to bring his people through the Red Sea, a path in the mighty waters not a path in a creek bed or, or a marshland. Uh, and so the, the vast majority of the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, when you get to Stephen and the Apostle Paul, the writer of the Hebrews, uh, they are unanimous in saying that this is a very large body of water. Uh, which brings us to the, the principle here. Uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 1, section 9. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. Therefore, 
uh, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by the other places that speak more clearly. Now, this is something that we come across when we think about what about the days of creation? Uh, what about Jonah? What about such and such? And, and you, could, you could make a long list of all these things. Well, if we read it just in this one isolated context, maybe, maybe it could mean this thing. When you look at the, the manifold witness of Scripture, um, you have to take all those things into account. Scripture is interpreting Scripture. We need to look at these things through the lens that, that the Lord has given us, the rest of the writings as well, because they're all one of a piece. Uh, we are way over time. Uh, but I hope you saw something of God's glory today. I hope you saw something of uh, his salvation and his strength and his power. Uh, I hope that you're incited to worship him. I hope that you're incited to teach this to your children. Uh, I hope that you uh, see something here that you can go back uh, and you can meditate on uh, and realize his glory more and more and praise him. Uh, let's close in prayer together. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would make it real and true in our hearts. Uh, it is always real and true. It is living and active. Would you use it, O oh Lord, like your scalpel, uh, to divide between joint and marrow, uh, between soul and body, uh, to cut to the very heart of us. Uh, we pray that you would help us to believe these things. Uh, pray that you would help us to speak uh, of them and the truth of them uh, and to rest in your good work, especially your good work through Christ, the one who is uh, the Savior, uh, who is the just and the justifier uh, of those who believe in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> you could have gotten me out of Sunday school too. <laughs> well, I'm I'm welcome. Yeah, you're welcome to at any time. But so we'll probably meet. We normally meet for prayer just uh, in front of the elevator down the hall. Yep. Um, we'll do that like about 10:45 yeah. to convene the committee. Okay. Sounds good. And is Bradley the convener? He is. Okay. Yeah.
right. I haven't spoken with him recently because he was on vacation, but I know he was. I hope he's on top of it. Hey, nice bow tie. Look at that. Jeremy, Jeremy Mullen. I've heard your name. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, it's been a couple of years probably since I. Yeah. Ever. Yeah, yeah, probably a couple of years. So. Um, a little while. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for thanks for doing this during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, sounds good. The mic is on right now. Okay. I'm not sure how to fix that. Oh, just turned the volume off over there. Is he coming through then? I I I'm on. Sorry. Don't go to the restroom until we turn that off. Now, um, uh, are you going to serve the supper? I am going to serve okay. the supper. So I believe you're only signed up for the sermon, unless okay. I have you giving a charge or a prayer. Uh, not that I know of. No. But yeah. So I'll do the, um, we've got pastoral prayer beforehand, mm -hmm. uh, and then I'll announce the collection of the tithes and offerings. Okay. When that music stops playing, come up and preach. Okay. Uh, and, and I'll read prayer. the passage and all that. Read the, yeah, read the passage. Okay. Good. Uh, end in prayer, and then I'll come up. I'll lead the uh, the hymn, um, unless you want to do that, but I can do that. No, uh, <laughs> I'll I will. Lead the hymn and then, uh, I will pray and sit down. Pray and sit down. <laughs> no, yeah. That's the best way to do it. That's always. That's always easy. Okay, also, I'll be over there in a few minutes. Hey, Dana, good to see you. Good to see you. How are you guys?